All right, well, good evening, everybody. How are you guys doing? Awesome. I'm doing great. Tonight, we are going to be celebrating communion together, and this will be our last communion service on Wednesday night, and so hopefully you guys got your communion emblems as you came in the room tonight. If you're watching online, this would be a good time to go get those ready um, so that we could celebrate communion together, but we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And tonight, did you guys get your communion things? No, you did not. All right. Will's going to take care of it for you guys. So. But we're going to keep teaching. All right, let's go. So tonight we're going to be talking about how to know that we know. And you might say, know what? <laughs> how to know that we know him. How to know that we are saved. How to know that we are in the family of God. The Bible teaches us that we can indeed know that, to have confidence and assurance in that. You know, and confidence, assurance of things, it's a very important human attribute. Lacking either confidence or assurance in our lives can, can lead to instability in our lives. It can lead to insecurity in our lives. And the same is true for the Christian life. If we have um, a lack of confidence and assurance in who we are in Christ and our salvation, it can really uh, cause us problems. You know, a common question that believers can sometimes wrestle with is, is can I know that I'm saved? Can I know that I'm saved? Now some would answer that question and say, nope, there's no possible way to know for sure. And to that person I'd be like, well that's kinda sad because biblically you indeed can know for sure that you are saved. And really since the ultimate destination of every human being on this earth is either heaven or hell, there's no issue of larger importance in our lives of whether or not our sins are forgiven, whether or not we are in right relationship with God. It's not something to leave up to chance. It's not something to be unsure about. It's definitely not something to be like, well, I'll find out when I get there because when you get there, it's too late, <laughs> okay? So John provides us with a test of assurance here in the verses we're looking at tonight. Um, a test of assurance that we are indeed in the family of God, that we are indeed saved. Now, some of us don't like tests, right? When we think of tests, some of us freeze up, you know? One of the things I, I really um, enjoy doing, um, and maybe I enjoy too much with my mom, <laughs> is uh, after Sunday mornings, I'll, I'll see her, and I'll be like, hey, mom, how was church? And she'll be like, oh, it was great. And of course, she's mom. You were so good up there. Well, thanks, mom. And then I do this every single week. I go, what'd you learn? Don't ask me that. <laughs> okay, mom. Don't ask me. I freeze up when I'm on, when I'm on the spot, you know? And um, she is learning stuff, by the way, but when the test comes, right? Oh, no, we're going to freeze up. Some of us uh, like tests. Sometimes tests can be fun, right? You know, over social media over the years, there's been all kinds of different, you know, take this test to find out which character you are, right? Um, one of them has been, uh, you know, which Star Wars character are you? Right? I don't know if you've ever taken that kind of test on Facebook or something. A fun test, except if you get like Jar Jar Binks or, you know, anybody from the latest three movies which shall not be named. Personal opinion, personal opinion. If you're a fan, God bless you. Um, but some tests are vital. Some tests in life are important to take and to do well on, and this is what John's test is here. Um, this is uh, an opportunity to really test ourselves 
and to know whether or not you are truly saved. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you, Lord, for this letter from John, Lord. It's been uh, so insightful, God, into really grounding us into the truth of who you are and our relationship with you and our salvation and what all that means, God. And so, Lord, I just pray you would continue to encourage us, God, to know you, to know that we know you, and to find confidence and assurance in your word that we are indeed your children, God, so that we wouldn't get caught up living lives constantly looking over our shoulders, so to speak, is God happy with me? Am I still his child or not? But God, we could live in the, in the joy and the peace and the freedom that we have in you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just speak to us tonight and bless us and encourage us through your word, Lord. And I pray for anybody, Lord, in this room or watching online that has been maybe wrestling with this question, am I really saved? I pray God tonight would help them to come to a confidence and assurance that if they have indeed put their faith in Jesus Christ and can check the, the, the boxes, so to speak, of this test we're looking at tonight, Lord, that they would have assurance, confidence, that they're in Christ. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Speak to us tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verses three through six. It says, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just, just as he walked. Sorry about that. Now, did you guys notice in those three verses there how many times the word no came up, right? The word no comes up four times in these three verses. What does that tell us? God wants us to know something. <laughs> God wants us to know something. And it's the status of your salvation, your salvation isn't a matter of guesswork. Our salvation is not a matter of wishful thinking. You can indeed, as a believer, be in a place where you don't have to worry and wonder whether you're truly saved or not. I believe God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. And so it says there in verse 3, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. Now that word know there is a Greek word, gnosko. It's gnosko all four times in these verses. And what that Greek word means is it's a certain type of knowing. It's a certain type of knowing that, that no single English word could really capture the meaning of. So it's really several English words are necessary to capture the meaning of what he means here to know. It's not just knowing about something. It's not just having intellectual knowledge, but to know something personally to know something relationally, intimately, to know something experientially. This is what he's talking about here. To know something through personal experience. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just a simple understanding of things. There's a whole other Greek word for that, oida, right? We're not gonna get into that, but you know. Just knowing facts and stuff is a completely different thing. What he's talking about here, gnosko, this is how we know. This is relational knowledge. 
Incidentally, this is the knowledge that, that Paul, in his writings, is constantly, constantly uh, praying that we grow in, right? As Paul is writing and encouraging us to grow in our, in our knowledge of God, it's, it's this gnosko, it's this personal, relational, intimate, experiential knowledge that Paul is constantly praying that we grow in. Now, when the New Testament writers talk about knowing God, they're not referring to, like I said, a mere intellectual understanding of truths, now, it involves that. Knowing God does involve knowing facts about him, but it includes knowing him through this personal relationship that begins in faith. When we put our faith in Christ and, and, and he saves us and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, we begin this journey of knowing him. It's no different than relationships you have, right? Married couples, you know each other better now than you did the first day you met. It's that type of experiential knowledge that he's talking about. Now, what's interesting here, and this gets into some, some uh, I call it geekery, but it's really Greekery, okay, in the original language of how this works, um, because the first word there, he goes, this is how we know that we know him. That word know is two different verb tenses that carry two different meanings. The first one is, in, in, is, is the first verb to know, this is how we know, is in what's called the present tense. It means something that is happening right now, but also happening continually or repeatedly. So you could phrase it this way. This is how we are continually coming to know that we know God, right? Speaking of this ongoing relational type of thing we have with God. But then the second no is in what's called the perfect tense. In the Greek language, this refers to a verb that, that, that speaks of a completed action. Something that happened in the past that is completed, but has ongoing effects or results that continue to today. To put, a, uh, to put it in an English example, there's a difference between saying, I have learned the Greek alphabet, and I had learned the Greek alphabet, right? Do you understand the difference between the two? The first one, I have learned the Greek alph alphabet, says at some point in the past, this action happened, and I still know it. I have learned the Greek alphabet. But when you say I had learned the Greek alphabet, it implies that at this point I knew it, but maybe not so well anymore, right? For most of us, that's like, I had known geometry. But we don't really remember much of it today. So the idea is there is that we came to know God, a completed action at some point in the past, and continue to know him today. So this is how it, it might be rewritten. This is how we are continually coming to personally, relationally, intimately, and experientially know that we have at a certain time in the past come to know him personally, relationally, intimately, and experientially, and continue to know him today. That's what he's saying there in this verse. Now, John loves this word know, this Greek word gnosko. He uses it over 30 times in his letters. And I think it's such a big word to him because if you think about it, how many different ways are there to know something, right? We obviously got the, the learning and the study and the facts but then knowing something by experience is that whole different level, and it's the second way that's the emphasis of this whole passage. So if he's saying this is how we know that we know him, the question is then how is it that we continually come to know 
that we continually learn, continually come to know that we have at a certain time in the past, came to know him, got saved, and continue to know him today. How? He says, if we keep his commands. That's how we know, right? Then he goes on in verse four to say, the one who says I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay, I appreciate how John is not real politically correct, right? It's so mean to call people a liar, you know? Well, he's just saying they're a liar. Now, what does John mean here when he says keep his commands? And what does John mean by commands, right? What is he talking about here? So the word commands is used two times in these verses, and what it refers to is an authoritative direction or instruction to do something, a command, right? A command. So what he's saying is if you keep his commands, you know Jesus. If you say you know Jesus and don't keep his commands, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. The gospel is not in you. Now, verse 5, he goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word... He goes on to talk about how the love is made complete in him. And then later on in verse 7, he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you've heard. (laughs) So the word, word in both places is referring to the message, the communication, or the content of a communication. And so in these verses, when he says, keep his commands and keep his word, he's referring to the same thing. Okay, that's the point there. Um, Now, when you go through the immediate context, and we'll look at this next time in verses 7 through 10, and then you look at the context of the whole letter of John here, and then you go back to John's gospel, and you look at the context of that, really, the whole context is that God is love, right? So it's pointing to, specifically, the commands that he's talking about here are the commands for Christ followers to love one another as he has loved us and to love God. That's really what it's talking about. Now, verse 5, he says, but whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. So there in verse 5, John links keeping his word or keeping his commands, as it's used synonymously, with the love of God being made complete in a person. So how is keeping the commands related to loving God or being in love with God or God loving us? Well, in John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, right? So we get the idea from all this that if we love Jesus, we will keep his word, And if we keep his word, his love is made complete in us. Now, we're going to walk through this idea more later, but all this to say is that the commands is essentially referring to God's word, all of Jesus' word, his instruction in general overall, but we know Jesus summed it all up this way, right? Love God, love your neighbor. So, the knowing that John is speaking of here is a progressive knowing It's coming to know more and more that you are indeed saved, that you know God through the experience of being obedient to Jesus' commands. And the idea, going back to the context of earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 1, it's the idea of a consistency in choosing to walk in the light rather than walking in the darkness. So three things that we can know is taught by verse 3. One, that it's possible to know God personally, relationally, intimately, experientially. It's possible to know God, right? He, he revealed himself to mankind in Jesus and in his written word. It's also possible to know that we know God personally and relationally. And really, this is the difference between being saved and having assurance of your salvation. 
This is why I believe some believers struggle with assurance of salvation even though they're saved, right? They've made a confession to Christ. They've, they, they read their Bible. They're, they're, they're following. They're trying to live a life to honor God, but they still stumble and fall. And then you start wondering, am I even saved? And these doubts then cause issues in our walks, and they cause issues in how we live. God doesn't want us to live in uncertainty about our eternal destiny. He doesn't want us on this roller coaster of am I saved, am I not saved, am I saved, am I not saved. He wants us to know that we are and to live in the security and the peace of that knowledge. I mean, think about it. You know, how peaceful is life when you have that moment where you go, did I pay the electricity bill? Oh no, did I pay the electricity bill? Are, are you at peace at that point? No, you're kind of consumed with, I got a call, I got to find out because electricity might get shut off, right? You're, you, assurance brings peace. So it's possible to know God. It's possible to know that we know God. And the third thing is that obedience to the commandments of God becomes evidence that we know him. But then what does he mean by keep the commands? What does he mean by this obedience? What is he talking about here? What does he mean by this word keep? Well, keep means this, to persist in obedience. To keep, to observe, to fulfill, or to pay attention to. It has a military connotation of to guard or to watch over something intentionally. Now, some people read this and they go, look, you have to keep his commands, right? You keep them perfectly, you fulfill them in every way, you're perfectly obedient, that's how you know you're saved. But that's not what it's saying here. Because again, back to the Greek stuff, right? The verb keep here is in a present subjunctive tense. Present means something happening right now, continually keeping, right? If you keep his commands, if you're continually keeping his commands. But then the subjective tense means a verb that is probable, intentional, wanted, or expected. It means the action is not considered as an objective completed fact. It's the idea of saying, I want to, I can, I may, I should, or I'm expecting to. So when he says keep his commands, he's talking about an intentionality um, and, 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 and being intentional and continually wanting to keep his commands. Do you understand the difference? It's a subtle difference when he says, this is how you know that you know him, keep his commands. So the question then is, how do we continually come to know that we have, in a certain time in the past, come to know God as our Lord and Savior and continue to know him today? The answer is by intentionally and continually wanting or expecting to observe or to fulfill his commands. How do you know you're doing this? Well, when the overall majority trajectory of your life when the overall majority trajectory of your life is, is a desire and an attempt and an intent to be obedient to God's commands, then you know. This word keep does not mean to perfectly keep the commands flawlessly. That's not what it's talking about here. Remember, subjective verb tense, right? It's an expected, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, something that, that is probable, something that I intend to. So you can know that you're saved if you have a consistency, a regularity in your life, uh, in, in your desire and your goal and your objective and your intent to be obedient to God's commands. That's the idea. How do I know I'm saved? Because the majority of my life is wanting to please him. 
How do I know I'm saved? How do I know for sure that I know God? How do I know? Because every single day you are continually coming to know through the fact that you want to obey him and you want to do the right thing and you want to follow him and you want to do what his word commands. That's what it's teaching here. However, if the overall majority trajectory of your life is not a desire, an attempt, an intent to be obedient to God's commands, or to put it the way John words it, if one says, I have come to know him, and yet there is no regularity in their desire or intent to be obedient to God's commands, then he says, you're a liar. You don't know him. He says, the truth is not in you, which is referring to the gospel truth. Now, this deals with those who might think or who might struggle with the concepts of, you know, I, I, I don't always keep the commandments of God. I, I, I wish I could. I try, but sometimes I fail. Sometimes I stumble. Does that mean I'm not saved? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Does that mean I'm not in the family of God? Stumbling does not mean you're not saved. Stumbling is a stumble. Every believer is going to stumble. That's what John just got done talking about in the first chapter. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Every believer is going to fail at times in keeping God's commands, whether it's in our words or in our thoughts or in our deeds and our behavior. But if your overall lifestyle, the overall habit of your life, the consistent regular habit and, and, and your regular consistent desire and intent is to be obedient to God, then you could know, you can have absolute assurance that you indeed are saved. And what that means is that when the devil comes to condemn you for messing up, when the devil comes to say, look, you're not a Christian, look what you just did. Look at what you just said. Look at what you just thought. You're not a believer. How dare you think you're saved? When the devil comes to do that and try to convince you that you can't possibly be saved because you messed up, well, you can say, step off, punk. You have nothing on me. That's the reality. Now, in verses five and six, he goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him, restating the same thing in a different way. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. So one of the other words that, that I believe is a favorite of John is the word love. Right? Historically, people say that he was known as the apostle of love. Right? One of the stories about John's life in the very end, I don't know if it's true or not personally, but tradition says at the very end of his life, one of his last sermons, you know, he was, he was infirmed and couldn't walk and they carried him in before the congregation on a cot to, to preach to the whole community there. And he said, love God and love one another. And they rolled him out. <laughs> that was it. That was the whole sermon, right? Don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds like John. He loved talking about the love of God. He loved talking about Loving God. 
And so he says, whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. The keeping his word there, it's the same concept that we just talked about, right? It's the same idea of of if you have the desire, the intent, the goal, if the regular consistent trajectory of your life is I want to obey God, I want to glorify him, I want to do what he's calling me to do. And, and, And most of the time, I try and be obedient to that, even though I sometimes stumble. Same concept. He says the love of God is is made complete. Now, what does he mean by the love of God? That phrase can either mean God's love for me, God's love for you, or it could mean our love for God. Now, since the context of this whole section is really about our keeping God's commandments, because that's an evidence that we know him, I believe it's talking about our love for God. So he's saying that when we keep his word, our love for God is made complete. Now what does that mean? Complete means simply to be brought to maturity. Other translations say it's made perfect or perfected, right? The idea is brought to maturity. And so again, this verb in the Greek is in a passive voice. (laughs) What that means is that it's not our keeping the word that makes our love mature. It's when we keep the word, God causes our love for him to mature. Interesting concept there. Because there's really three possible reasons for people to choose to do things. People choose to do things because they have to, or because they need to, or because they want to. And if you think someone that's like a prisoner, right? Someone that's in prison or back in these times there were people that were were in slavery. You know, they they do what they're told because they have to, right? They they have no control. They have no opportunity. They, they, They do what they're told because they have to. But then you have the concept of a child at home who obeys because they need to. Right now, you might think, my child has to obey me. But but really they can exercise their defiant will to say no, right? And, and, and you're not going to kill them for it, or at least you might want to, but you're not going to follow through on that, right? But, but children, they, they tend to obey at home because they need to, right? If I disobey, I'm not going to get the dessert after dinner. If I disobey, I'm not going to get the thing, you know, the, the thing I want, the toy I want, the playtime I want. There's this idea of that to do it because they need to. That carries through into adulthood, right? Adults, you go to work on time, because you need to. Or you don't have to, you could show up late if you want, but you need the paycheck to pay the bills, so you show up to work on time, because you need to. Now, neither of these two reasons is really a mature reason, a mature motivation for obedience. Mature obedience flows out of love. It goes from have to to need to to no, I want to. I'm doing this because I want to. For Christians, our obedience to Christ should never be because I have to, or I need to. It should always be motivated because I want to. But the transition in a Christian's life to go from I'm obeying God because I have to, I'm obeying God because I need to, and then getting to the point of saying I'm obeying God because I want to, that's called spiritual maturity. That's called growing in our walk with Christ and growing in our love for him. It's a change of heart. It's a growth that is wrought by God himself. He's the one that changes us from the inside out. Now back to John 14, 15. Again, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. 
if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, do we keep God's commands because we're afraid he'll smack us if we don't? Is that why we obey God? Now, some might say that's certainly a reason to obey God, but it's not a mature reason. Do, do going back to teenagers, do they do what their parents tell them to do because um, they're afraid if they don't, they'll have their phone taken away? And so then if they obey in that situation, are they obeying out of love for their parents or are they obeying out of some selfish need? Or do you do the things you do because you love the authority who's telling you to do them? You love them. These are the questions that John is asking here in this section. And I think it's interesting because some 50 years prior to this letter being written, I think John is is repeating what he heard as a young man in the upper room, as he was standing there with Jesus, and Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I think that carried with John through his whole life and what that meant. And so he's repeating the concept here. Every decision to obey the Lord's commands, every decision to say, I'm gonna do what God wants and not the sinful thing, every decision to say, I'm gonna walk in the light and not in the darkness, really is evidence as John is laying out here, that you love him, that you love Christ. What John is in a sense saying is like, look, when you say you love him and continually choose disobedience, well, I kind of question whether or not you really love him. That's kind of what John's getting at. Now he says it a little harsher. You're a liar, right? But when we choose obedience... We demonstrate that, that, yeah, I love him, and I said I love him. And the proof of my love for him is my desire and, and, and choice to do the right thing. Now, does that mean we do it perfectly all the time? No. But the overall picture of my life is one where I'm like, I want to obey God. I want to glorify him. I want to be obedient to him. I want him to, to be pleased with my life. Loving Jesus is reason enough to make the choice to do what he says. It doesn't matter what someone else is doing, right? Sometimes we let that be, be the decision point for us. Should I obey Jesus? Well, they're doing a worse thing and getting away with it, so therefore I'm not gonna obey God. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. Our number one goal should be to please Christ, to please him. And so a mature love for Christ, which growing and maturing in our faith is the goal, again, it's part of the trajectory we should be walking on, is ultimately the habit of choosing to do what God says simply because he said it. That's the goal. That's that's what we're moving towards. That's why when he says, this is how we know that we know him. This is how we are continually coming to know that at one point we knew him in salvation and we know him today as his child. This is how we know it. When we have this regular desire in our lives to say, God, I want to please you. And when most of the time we choose obedience. Some of us are keeping God's commands today because we have to. You have this relationship where you think he's constantly mad at me and he's just waiting to, to throw a lightning bolt on my head and that's, that's not the relationship God wants with you. Some may be having a relationship with God where you're obeying him because you need to. You, you, you have this, this, this dynamic where, well, God's not gonna bless me if I don't. That's not the intent. The goal is to get to that place where, God, 
I'm obeying you because I want to. Because it's a demonstration of my love for you. And this is something that grows over time. We learn to love Jesus better as we grow in our relationship with him. And as we grow in our understanding of him and who he is and and we grow in his love for us, as we come to know him more and more, personally, relationally, experientially, we find in our lives a growing and greater desire to obey him because our heart is changing. And that results in a growing and greater desire to choose the obedient thing, which we have the power and ability to do now because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God has given us the ability to say no to sin, which results in a growing and maturing love for him which results in a growing and greater desire to obey him, which results in a growing and greater desire to choose the obedient thing, which we can do because the power of the Holy Spirit is with us, which results in a growing and maturing love for him, and on and on and on. And so John says in verse, the end of verse five into verse six, so this is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. We know that we are in him, meaning we're saved. We know that we're part of his family. We know that we are his saved children. We know that we remain in him or abide in him, which simply means to continue in a certain state. We know that we're continuing in the state of being his saved child by this. When we say we are saved, and we demonstrate that by our ongoing decisions and desires to be like Jesus. It's not putting your faith on a bumper sticker. It's not getting a faith-based tattoo. It's not posting some nice scriptural social media post. It's, it's putting it. It's posting it. It's, 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 it's putting it in your life. And this gets into our witness and all this stuff as people say, why do you keep choosing to do that over that? It's because I'm a Christian because I want to obey God. So John is saying, if you say you're a true believer, it should be reflected in how you live your life. Not perfectly without fail, but overall, generally, consistently, your life is lived towards holiness, is pursuing holiness and not sinfulness. The goal of our lives is to be like Jesus. What he says here is he goes, the one who says he remains in him should walk as he walked. The idea is that we should pattern our lives after the life of Christ. We should be living a what would Jesus do mentality at all times. You know, but, but if I don't do the thing my boss is wanting me to do at work, even though I know it's wrong and immoral, I won't get the promotion. Who do you respect more, God or your boss? Who do you revere more, God or your boss? Who do you fear more, God or your boss? For that matter, who do you love more, God or your boss? It all comes down to this this idea. is like, look, in your life, is God real? Is, Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Do you love him over all things? 
Because it's not about the rules and the regulations, right? Did I do this many sins today? Did I not do that many sins today? It's not about that. It's not about, you know, I have to do these things or he's gonna crush me. It's not about I need to do these things in order to earn his blessing and his favor. It all comes down to love for Jesus. Do I love him? Do I love him? And is that expressed in a desire to, to, to be who he wants me to be and live the way he wants me to live? And, you know, if, if you do, then you will endeavor to walk as Jesus walked. Your intention will be to live how he lived. And that idea of walk, it's, it just means our conduct, our behavior, our life. You know, and, and you go back and you think, how did Jesus live, right? We have four gospels that detail his life. Most of it's the last three years of his life. But you think about, you know, how was Jesus in his childhood? He stressed his parents out, yeah, sure. But it says that he always obeyed them. In his, in his adult manhood, he lived in obedience to his heavenly father. You study the life of Jesus, he loved people. He had an unswerving faithfulness to scripture. He, he lived morally pure, and he was selfless, and he had a servant's heart. And he did everything he could to, to, to help and take care of people. And all of this is meant to be a pattern for us. All of this is meant to be an example to us of how we're to live our lives. flies attacking me. I'm going to keep preaching, fly. Okay. It's all meant to be an example for us to emulate. Jesus' obedience to the Father, you study his life, it was voluntary. It wasn't forced. It was universal. It wasn't just in certain areas of his life. It was his whole life. It was, it was complete, and it was based on his love for the Father. You know, in John 14, 31, he said, so that the world would know that I love the Father, I do what he's commanded me. And it's the same in our lives. It's the same in our lives. How does the world know that we love Jesus? When our lives are characterized by a radical trajectory, a goal, a habit, a desire, an intent to always do what Jesus would do. Yes, we have moments of stumbling, but those moments of stumbling are the exception, not the norm. John's gonna deal with here in the next section and into chapter three with the person who goes, um, I have no desire to live for Jesus and I have no intent to obey him and I have no, you know, oh, I'm a good person, I do a couple good things, but there's, there's the, the, the majority of my life is not wanting to, obedient to, to be obedient to Jesus. And to that person, he goes, you don't know God. You don't know him. But remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, is leave, living as Jesus lived. It's keeping his commandments. It's walking as he walked. And so that's the test. How does your life measure up? When you look at your life, how does it measure up? Who, who is your pattern for Christian living? Because it should be Jesus. He's the pattern, the example. Hebrews chapter 12 says this in verse one and two. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Are you here in this room tonight or watching online wondering whether or not you are truly saved? Thinking, you know, I, I, I confessed Christ 
You know, I, I invited him to be the Lord and Savior. I repented of my sins. You know, I, you know, I went forward at that altar call or that harvest crusade or just in the quietness of my own bedroom. I prayed, God, you're real, and just I give my life. I did that, but, but, but I stumble and I fall and I did this thing. Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Has your stumbling caused you to doubt? Well, Jesus never said stumble and you're done. He said, keep running. And if we're in the race, and we're running the race, and we have a desire to get to the finish line of that race, if we have a desire most of the time in our life, because we all go through valleys sometimes, but if the overall trajectory of our lives is to see his face at the finish line, arms wide and big smile across his face. If the trajectory of our life, the goal and the intent of our life is to glorify him and to please him and through his power we find that the majority of our lives when we say God give me the power to say no to sin we find that happening then we can know we are his. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are his. That we are saved. We can know that he is in us, and we can know that he is working every single day in us to grow us, to mature us, to complete us, and to perfect us. Now, yes, it's true, we stumble less when we keep our eyes on him. It's true that we stumble less when we stay on the path that he has pioneered for us. It is true we stumble less when we follow his example and pattern of living, but regardless and despite the stumbles, we can know that we know that we are his and that he is ours. That's the truth of the scriptures. Now, as John revisited the upper room, I believe as he was writing here and through his writings, as he was revisiting that memory of being in that upper room with Jesus, as he said, if you love me, keep my commands. I want to visit, revisit the upper room tonight together as the body as we celebrate communion together. Because it was that time in the upper room where Jesus instituted communion. That final night he had with his disciples. Communion is a time where we remember the foundation of our saving relationship with him. We remember the price paid that we could have that saving relationship with him. We remember what he did as the atoning sacrifice for us that our relationship with our creator could be restored Communion remembers the most significant act of love that anybody has ever done. How Jesus himself became the atoning sacrifice that we would be forgiven of all sin, that we would be set free from the power and the penalty of sin and death. So you should have, I didn't get one. All right. We have skills here sometimes, yeah. Okay, so you should all have one of these, these cups in the room. If you're online, get your emblems ready here. But I just want to give you guys quick instructions on the communion cups. There's a very thin plastic piece on top, like that's a tab, and then there's a thicker tab. If you just pull back the thin one very carefully, you'll reveal the cracker here. You know, and in communion, this represents, well, this is the bread, and in and, and Jesus, when he was instituting communion, he, it, it tells us that he, he took the bread. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. 
he broke the bread because he was wanting his disciples to know, this is my body. This is my body for you. His body was broken for us. And he said, do this in remembrance to me. As, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. He wanted us to remember. He wanted us to know that we know that he did this for us. He wanted us to know that this bread represented his sinless body that was given for us, right? That's why the bread has no leaven in it, right? Because in, in the Bible, leaven represents sin and sin puffs us up. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I, the body that, that I'm giving, my body, it, it's pure, it's sinless. It's, it's the perfect atoning sacrifice that is taking the full wrath of God, the full judgment of God in your place. And he wanted us to remember that, how he took that full wrath of God for all sin and all unrighteousness. It was the full judgment of God that fell on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. That's why the bread was broken. And the reality is, is without his sacrifice, we would have absolutely no hope in this life. We would have no hope for righteousness. We would have no hope for salvation. We would have no hope of being able to live a life free from sin. We would have no hope. Every sinful action, every sinful thought, every sinful cause, every sinful effect demands the holy judgment of God Almighty. But because he loved you so much, because he loved me so much, he loved us so much, he took that judgment on himself in our place. And when he did that, he completely appeased the wrath of God. He completely satisfied the justice of God where God said, look, I, I, I have to mete out the penalty for sin, but I love these people so much. How do I, how do I be just and yet allow them to still live? He said, I'll pour out all the penalty, all the punishment, all the judgment on my son. And that's what this bread represents, and that's why we gather to remember it. That we don't have to live a life anymore of like, oh no, God's gonna, God's gonna get me because I stumbled, because I fell. God's like, no, it's not about the rules and the regulations anymore. It's just, it's about love. I love you. Love me. So Father, we pray. We pray tonight, God, as we remember your body broken for us. As we are gathered here as the body of Christ, Lord, the, the, the people you have saved, your children, we are gathered here to say thank you, God, that you took our judgment on yourself. We say thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross and you became the atoning sacrifice to pay our penalty, to pay for our sin, that we could be set free, that we could be forgiven. Lord, it's a price we were never able to pay on our own. And God, you paid it in full forever. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you, God, for doing what we couldn't do ourselves. That we would be able to have this relationship and know that we have this relationship with you, our Savior. That you are our God that we are your children and that you love us and that we love you as well, Lord. We thank you so much. Let's partake together.
Right, if you're in the room, if you pull back the thicker plastic tab very carefully, it'll reveal the, reveal the juice here in the communion cup. And when Jesus was in that upper room that night with his disciples, it tells us that he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance for, of me. It's a new covenant. It wasn't a covenant where we had to, you know, keep the scorecard and did we, did, we, did we follow all the rules right and did we make the proper amount of sacrifices and did we do this and, you know, and 12 turtle dubs, dubs and 10 golden rings and, and all the, you know, did, we didn't have to keep track of all this stuff. We didn't have to keep coming back to lay a sacrifice over and over and over and over again knowing that every time we did, it didn't change my heart. I'm still the same sinful person. No, he said this is the new covenant. That my blood will be shed for you once for all, forever. And that it won't just cover your sin, it'll cleanse you from sin. And he wanted us to remember that. That in him and through him and because of him, we are washed completely clean. We are born again. We are set Free. We are declared not guilty with a clean record. And that from that point forward, because we know that we know him and we know we're in relationship with him, is that when we stumble and fall, he says, look, confess your sins. And we say, God, I stumbled, I fell. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you again. He goes, let's get up. Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep running this race. Don't focus on the sin. Don't focus on the stumble. Don't focus. Focus on me because I love you. We get to live each day because of what he did, forgetting our past, forgetting our old ways, forgetting our old selfish nature. Never again worried about did we or didn't we appease the wrath of God against sin. Never again worried about do I know him or do I not know him. The very fact that you want to please him proves that you do. Because your spirit has been made alive. You have been born again. And so instead, we get to live in the memory that at one point in time, through my faith in Jesus Christ, I was saved. We all get to live with that memory. At one point in time, I came to know him. I was saved. I was forgiven. And one day through faith, I was adopted into his family as his child. And because of that one day, today, I am still his child. I am still forgiven. He still forgives me. He still washes me clean, and he does it continually. And he keeps doing it and, and, and keeps working in us to grow us and to mature us and to perfect us and to complete us and to complete our love for him because of his work on the cross. And we remember that because he shed his blood for us, because we've accepted that sacrifice, we've put our faith in what he did, we are children of God, beloved. We are saved. We are transformed for his glory. We are given a new heart, the Bible says. We're given a living spirit that desires to obey him, and then we're enabled and empowered to decide to do so by the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful, God, for the blood you shed for us. God, you didn't just satisfy the wrath of God by, by, by taking the wrath in, 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 in on, onto yourself. 
but then God, your blood was shed to wash us clean from sin. You didn't just cover our sin. You washed it clean. We're not the same people we were before we put our faith in you on that one day, that one point in our lives. And God, because we put our faith in you in that one day, your blood washed us clean then and forever. And God, we know today we are saved. Today we are your children. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. God, help us to live and move in, 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 in that knowledge, God, to, to know that we know you because we keep your commands, Lord. Not perfectly and flawlessly, Lord, but we have that desire, God, born of your spirit in us to want to please you, to want to love you, to want to obey you. And so, God, keep helping us every day to make the decision to obey you when the temptation comes. When we stumble, God, help us to remember to go to you immediately and to confess our sins. That by your shed blood we would be washed clean, washed, washed clean again, washed anew and forgiven. We thank you, God. We love you so much. Let's partake together. Well, I pray that God would bless your lives in every way he wants to. I pray that you would be open to the work he wants to do in your life. You know, one of the things I love about this gospel, or this letter, 1 John, I love the gospel of John too, but one of the things I love about this letter is how it just spells out this relationship that we get to have with God through Jesus Christ free. How it spells out the concepts of how to reconcile those things. God, I wanna, I wanna obey you, but I stumble. God, I wanna, I wanna glorify you, but I messed up. That we can live a life knowing that we're his kids. That we don't have to doubt that. And then starting from that place of assurance and confidence we would then be able to boldly come before the throne of grace, as the Bible says, to hop up right into our dad's lap, no matter what he's doing in the boardroom, and say, I need you right now. I need your help. Knowing that because we're his kids, he will quite literally drop what he's doing to pay attention to you. And what's neat is because he's God Almighty, he can do that to every single one of us at the same exact time, praise God. So march forward in your life, keep running the race, keep your eyes fixed on him. When you stumble, confess, but don't doubt that you're his child. Don't doubt whether you're saved. If you've put your faith in him, if you trust him, if you have a desire in your heart born of God to want to obey him, know that you know him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's worship.